Um, a while ago, you mentioned that you had grad students following people around in art galleries. Yeah, we actually do. And that's Miranda Lucas um, conducting those studies. She's doing a PhD in evolution and behavior. So, so she tracks how long they look at the work? Well, she's, it's not so much that because that's a pretty traditional kind of study to do, which is where it's just called dwell time, so how long people spend. And that does give you a little bit more, but it's more like, do you call somebody over? Are there things in your body language that show that you're interested and engaged? Um, do you, you know, lean in to read? Do you point at something? Those kind of behaviors. The project's called uh, Art, Action, and Perception, uh, the, be the gallery as a behavior setting. And what we are doing, or what I'm doing, is looking at people in art galleries, so just observing them, and collecting three types of measurements in real time. So I have my iPhone out, and I'm just recording how long they're standing in front of a work and sort of instances of different behaviors as they come up. Then I'm also, uh, I have a video uh, camera recording, a small GoPro camera installed in the gallery. And with that video footage, I do what's called Eshka-Walkman movement notation analysis, which is breaking down the movements into uh, like a vector space to uh, remove bias when you're looking for really subtle movements. Uh, like, and that, that, again, gets at like, are they leaning in, proximity, these sorts of things. And then also just qualifying elements of the space itself to try and understand uh, what the affordances are of the space. There's this concept in psychology that I find especially useful, um, and it's called affordances. Um, what do you mean by affordances? Essentially, an affordance is something that suggests a possibility for action. So affordances can be either physical or social. I look at both in my work. But um, I'll give you an example of a physical affordance. So a teapot is a great example because the way that we have designed a teapot suggests how you should use it. It suggests what the physical affordances of the teapot are. There's a handle on one side, a spout on the other for pouring, and the lid in the middle that suggests where you fill it. So it's, there, sometimes physical affordances are very straightforward. Um, there's also social affordances. So the possibility for a conversation or the possibility to meet someone new or chat with someone about how your dinner was last night. These are things that are afforded by people that are in the space for art galleries, uh, in art galleries. So I use uh, affordances in my work because the way that we've set up art galleries suggests what behavior is appropriate in them. And affordances also have the ability to make you feel either very welcome or very unwelcome in a space. So I'll give you an example. So uh, the Floor Burger is this uh, piece that's quite famous at the AGO uh, by Klaus Oldenburg. Um, and essentially what it is, is it's a giant plush burger, uh, pickle and all, in the middle of the floor. 
it sits right on the floor. And he insisted that it sit right on the floor. And uh, I once observed this woman, she had to be maybe in her early 80s, uh, walk right up to the floor burger and just sit down on it because it looks like a giant beanbag chair. It, the, the, the way that the burger is designed suggests that one of the possibilities for action is to sit on it and it might be a nice comfy place to sit. And the way that we design art galleries, whether we include a bench for people to rest, especially older people, they need to rest. And if a comfortable burger is sitting on the floor and not hung up on a wall and a lady lived through the Korean War, then she's <laughs> just going to sit on that thing. It's quite common that um, elderly people, as they're moving through these spaces with hard floors, um, and they, they're often looking for, where is my next place that I can take a rest? And unfortunately, sometimes we don't offer them enough options uh, by, especially in contemporary exhibitions, is, has been my experience. So having, for instance, a film show, but no chairs. So where are people supposed to sit and enjoy a film? Typically, they'll sit on a floor, the floor, but an elderly woman is not going to get down on the floor. So instead, she might sit on the edge of a plinth, which isn't allowed in art galleries, and then you get in trouble. So it's these, these competing, um, competing notions about how do we keep it, for in, especially in contemporary exhibits, keep it looking sleek and posh, but also give people the, the opportunity and the possibility to enjoy what they're looking at. Kind of like w there's certain doors that have like, um, like, things on them that you think you should be pulling but then it's actually a push door and it's like why did you put this bar in here if i'm gonna pull it it's like that like a social version of that classic example of an affordance so another example from the ago was there were these white doors and behind the white doors was a film but there was absolutely nothing on the outside of these white doors to suggest that the public was allowed to enter that space. And there was a, quite a lot of discussion within the AGO about whether or not they should put, please come in on the outside of those doors. <laughs> and uh, I personally, I was there when, when uh, for about a week before the, the sign went up and about a week afterwards, and I observed the difference. And it was easily 100% more people went in when you just add please come in to the outside of a door that's completely white and doesn't suggest that it is a place or a space for um the public to enter it, it sounds like art galleries are designed like uh like really pretentious hipster bars that play only german music <laughs> <laughs> and just kind of like they like it when you're a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> yeah, I would say that, that that in some instances is quite accurate, but it, it depends on the goals of the institution. And um, I would say it comes down a lot, a lot of times to the curator. It seems to me they play a really important role. Josie could probably speak more to that. Um, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a holistic thing. So what does the institution want? 
for who does the institution want to serve? Are they out to serve a public? And I put that in air quotations. Or are they out to serve sort of an elite that um, that they think will get it, that they think will come in and already have the knowledge to understand the high-level haute couture art that they're showing. Yeah, and I think I mean I think one of the problems is that uh, for art, especially with contemporary art galleries, is that there are people who've worked really hard to attain that position of authority. So whether they're the a collector of art or a, as a visitor or working there, and that they want to keep it as an elite space because it's part of what they've sort of bought into about making them feel special. So the art gallery might say that it wants to appeal to a broad audience, but all of the affordances, all of the ways that are set up are designed to, in fact, only make a very narrow range of people feel comfortable in that space. Do you think that's because it's sort of set as a, the public is this very abstract concept as a, as, and so rather than saying, okay, we're going to have real people whose legs will ache and, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be of different ages and, and different ethnicities and they'll, you know, you don't do that. You abstract away and you have this, this amorphous blob of public that you think you're catering to, but you're not because you're not catering to any real person at any point. You think that's yeah. something to do? Yeah, and absolutely. And I think it's also that the reality is that a lot of curators spend time in the gallery uh, with the artists as they, you know, plan the installation. And once the exhibition goes up, they'll spend time there with, um, you know, VIPs who they're giving a tour to, yeah. but they don't actually spend time in the gallery like the way the public programmers, the educators do. So they don't spend time in the gallery with the general public, like Seeing the people who, do, who yeah. ordinarily come. And so they actually, it would never dawn on them that somebody might sit on this lovely cushy hamburger <laughs> yeah. and so they're creating spaces that are really just for uh, other curators and artists and maybe art collectors right so just to play devil's advocate a little bit and Miranda can speak to this as well right but, but if you have a building that's already there and that you come in and then you this is where you have to put your exhibition on those some of those affordances are already set for you so I would say like as as someone who lectures I might think, right, yeah, I'm going to have a massively groovy, ugh, you know, interactive class today. And then I walk into one of the classrooms and there's seats all bolted to the floor in a set of rows and there's a lectern and this is where, and it's like, this is where I stand and that's where you sit. And everything is set up for me to stand at the front and like pontificate on things and other people to sit and passively listen to me. And the room says that to them. So you, all the students who come in their first year they walk into the classroom and they immediately know where they have to sit. No, I've never walked into a classroom and seen sit, someone sitting behind the lectern waiting for the lecture to start. Where it's, it's a chair, there's a chair there. That's, it's like you could sit there. Never has anyone. And if I say that, like, doesn't anyone want to sit here? Everyone goes, <laughs> right? And the room has said, this is how we are going to do this. And there's, it's so hard to, to break that up once the room is set up like that. So do, do you not think that maybe the fact that the art gallery exists as that kind of thing also means that even if they don't realise it, curators are constrained in what they can do because there's that similar kind of setup. What would you say to that? I would say that you're constrained in that you 
your building exists where it exists. So you 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 already exist within a community. Um, so the AGO on Dundas Street, you know, they they understand the community within which they are situated. The U of L Art Gallery exists where it exists. The affordances to get around that giant <laughs> uh, concrete structure and find the door is a very difficult one to fight against. Um, but then what, when you're actually in the space, I think that curators and directors have quite a lot of opportunity to manipulate the affordances and just the space itself. They can, I'm always amazed at how they can transform between exhibitions, building walls and adding um, all sorts of different things. So I think to some extent, there are things that you cannot change, but within the space itself, once you convince people to get in there, that's where I think we can play okay. around and, so you and think, make changes. So you'd say sometimes curators are working, they're actually exploiting those affordances that set up those barriers in a way. I think, I mean, the other part is choosing the artist that you work with. So one shouldn't have to say this, but I mean, the thing that I do is I choose to work with artists who actually give a lot of thought to their audience. And on, Unfortunately, that's not actually a case that applies to all, all, you know, artists who are working. So the thing is, by working with artists like Ed Pian, uh, that he gives a lot of thought to how people are going to experience his exhibition. And so you're not then fighting between the curator and the artist. You're both of us are working together to create a space that that looks really interesting as soon as you look in the door that it's really clear where you can that you can come into it and that there's things that capture your attention and make you want to come in and make you want to find out more once you come into the space right well i mean speaking from personal experience just um i find that the ulef gallery managed to create this wonderful hack because a poster <laughs> that says free cookies <laughs> just there's something about it that draws me <laughs> magnetically to that area and i can't quite pinpoint what it is i think it might be the free cookies i i don't know I, we can't be sure i don't think we can ever really know there's also the free free coffee there is also well. the free coffee which is a bonus because they didn't advertise that that was just <laughs> i just i just found myself there and there was coffee um one of the things that Miranda has done the study at four institutions, so done it at the University of Lethbridge Art Gallery, McMaster Museum of Art in, in Hamilton, at the Art Gallery of Alberta, and at the Art Gallery of Ontario. So four different sizes, four different of galleries and, and of, of the cities that they're in. And when she was at the U of L, I mean, I knew I was going to find out stuff that I didn't expect to find out, but I was a little bit smug. I mean, that I come out of an art education, okay, maybe more than a little. Uh, I come out of an art education background as well as a curating background. So I am one of the few curators who actually spends lots of time in the gallery with people, and, I, and I've done that here and at other places I've worked. But that um, Miranda reported on as soon as she started setting up in the gallery, and, and the way the U of L, the current gallery, is set up, we don't have a live attendant sitting in that gallery. So when Miranda was doing the study, we actually had a person who was sitting there and she reported that people kept coming up to the door and cautiously sticking their head in and saying, am I allowed in here? And I thought my biggest problem was just 
them either being motivated to come to, to like, why would I come to an art gallery and then physically finding it because we're behind this huge concrete stairwell inside a building is where our entrance is. But I thought as soon as they made it to our threshold, they were like, yay, I'm at the art gallery. I'm charging in. I can't believe how much fun I'm going to have. And, uh, <laughs> that this insight from Miranda was just totally, uh, you know, it was something that I did not expect. Yeah. And I think part of that is that people expect to have to pay admission or um, it was quite hilarious to witness because they would keep their feet outside the threshold and just poke <laughs> their head in. Well, they hadn't really gone in. They weren't, you couldn't, they couldn't get in trouble. Yeah, at that they couldn't point. get in trouble. I didn't physically enter, just my head did, and um, and asked me, you know, it, as politely as possible, is this space for me? <sighs> and so we're trying to shape that and, and suggest that, yes, absolutely it is. <laughs> well, and I think that it's also, for Miranda, it's led to this really interesting thing that one of the sections is she's just looking at the doorways themselves. So whether it's the outside of the gallery, like the physically outside it, or the doorway once you're inside a larger building and you're, you're coming up, like in the Art Gallery of Alberta, it's not clear on every floor where you can go into the actual exhibition spaces. Absolutely. So when I worked at the Vancouver Art Gallery, which is an, uh, it's an old courthouse building that's, that's been transformed, and so it has grand staircases on the front and the back, but neither of those are the actual entrance to the Art Gallery. <laughs> So the the entrance is around the side and kind of underneath the one grand entrance, and the other one is just completely blocked off. But for the curators, when you're coming down the inside staircases, which are marble and gorgeous, by the way, you'd come down the staircase and you could see through the barred off, locked up doors to the steps, these poor people trying to get into the building, but they're could not figure out how to actually get into the art gallery. Meanwhile, you're coming down like Sofia Coppola from Godfather <laughs> 3. Yeah. Do you yeah. remember when we went um, for breakfast with Andrew Hunter and he was talking, telling us about the AGO and the way that he wanders around and the, the thing that most people ask him is like, where's the way out? How do I get out? <laughs> and he was saying it's this thing of like not wanting, you know, the that people need to know where that exit is because then they can feel comfy if they know where the way out is. Is that feeling of not knowing how to get in and out of a space also makes people feel more or less comfortable. So he said that was a really interesting thing about when he first went to the AGO, that, that people were, the thing that they found difficult was the fact that you didn't know where the exit was. And he talked about that, a, oh. that a, an expert in, in kind of the, the whole like how you design spaces for people to feel safe. Yeah, I, can't, yeah. I can't remember who it was, but said that the AGO had done everything wrong. Yeah, they, they had done created a space that produces <laughs> paranoia and anxiety. And anxiety. <laughs> um, I keep thinking about what is what is that lady? The uh, Maria Abramovich. That's it. With with that whole exhibition of the the artist is in. And as soon as somebody gestures towards her, like guards haul out the, the patrons. But it's like, you can't say that this person is in and say that you have access to this person and then suddenly have them carted off as soon as, yeah. Well, you, you can in a contemporary art gallery. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> but, you sh but you shouldn't <laughs> if, you, if you actually want to engage uh, people. Um, I... I uh, 
I, I guess they have different goals. So like what's what specific things are you observing when you're staring at all of these patrons doing their thing at the art gallery? Well, really, I'm trying to do an inventory of what do people do. So I'm not looking out for anything in particular. I mean, I do have predictions um, of what I think is going on. But more or less, I'm trying to make a toolbox, a behavioral toolbox that I can help our other art galleries understand what their patrons are getting up to in the art gallery. Because to date, we don't have that. And we especially don't have that for Canadian institutions, and we don't have it for university art galleries in particular. So I'm really just trying to take an inventory of what is going on. But you see a lot of different things depending on the space, depending on the demographic that uh, the space is serving. While I was doing the pilot for this, I was trying to figure out what behaviors I should be recording. And while an adult might do five behaviors in, say, 10 minutes, you know, they might, they might point, they might bend over, and the rest of the time they're kind of walking and stopping. Children will do about 10 times that amount in the same stretch of time because they're just they do so many more behaviors so again to go back to the floor burger example there was this one uh child who as he rounded the corner and he had to be like about four years old rounded the corner to see this giant burger sitting in the middle of the room and you could just see in his entire posture as he opened up and took this gasp and was just like oh <gasps> oh my God, this burger is for me and started quite quickly at pace moving towards the floor burger. And the security guard sees this and he's trying to stay calm and is like, no, 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 as the kid is getting closer and closer. And at the last moment, it was quite tragic, but also hilarious. The kid looks at the security guard and trips over his own feet and lawn darts completely <laughs> head first into the floor burger. So whereas that exact same interaction with an adult would have happened much slower and more subtly, kids just have this ability to do things more quickly and more overtly than we see in adults. So really, so much of your job is actually just making that space comfortable enough for people to want to actually go to it. I don't know if it's about making it comfortable, but making it that it's functional, I guess. Or, or or at least like removing enough unnecessary barriers so that people don't feel more awkward than they need to. Yeah, because I think the thing is, is that one could say that the barriers or the, the failures of affordances that are in an art gallery that make people feel uncomfortable because the curators and the, the staff are not thinking about it. But I think that's actually not true. I think that there is this thing of embracing the space of making it uncomfortable. The, the mm-hmm. argument is about having to not interfere with the artwork. This is what Jen Budney talks about as well, which is that we've been stuck in this, this trap going round and round for 100 years, which is one side of gallery professionals say that the art should stand alone and people should have this pure aesthetic experience. And the other side say that we need to be giving people information in context. And I totally 100% fall on the giving people information in context and making them feel welcome. And 
the other side, I mean, what is assumed is that you actually already have the knowledge. So the reason that you can walk into a space and have, you know, a Mark Rothko painting by itself on a wall with no text and nothing that tells you anything about it is because you already know who this artist is and you know what this, you know, color field painting is about and you know how you're supposed to interact with it, which is to just sit down and look at it and have a transcendental experience. So y you already know this. You know it from having taken art history classes at university right. or you know it because you're a member of the art gallery and you come to lectures from the artists and, and the curators. You still need the information, but you're supposed to already have it. Right. And that's where you're supposed to already have it because of your education and your cultural standing. The thing with art galleries is there are clearly a range of different people of different groups who are not well served. So if you I mean as Jen Budney is looking at the fact that the people who tend to come to art galleries tend to be well educated and they tend to be white. And so we're not connecting with indigenous people. We're not connecting with culturally diverse people. And and it's, it is, it's good that that pressure is now happening to improve that. And so one of the things that I definitely want to do at the UofL Art Gallery and that for Lichen Lab to do in terms of our research is to really look at how we can uh, make those uh, strong connections for a diverse people so that I've seen you know, the magic happen in art galleries where people really do have that strong experience but how do we make that magic happen for a much broader range of people? Right. Another grad student, Maria Medaki, that's exactly what she's looking at. Her project for her PhD in evolution and behavior is looking at working with new Canadians. Is she around? Yeah, we can go and talk to her. Sweet. The Lichen Lab podcast is produced by myself, Marvik Adiser, and the principals of Level 2 Lichen Lab, Christine Clark, Louise Barrett, and Josephine Mills. Our audio engineers are Matt Erdman, Matthew Redderberg, and Jake Kadike. Special thanks for this episode goes to Miranda Lucas. Funding support for this project is provided by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and the Canada Council for the Arts. Visit our website, lichenlab.ca, for show notes and to see more of the ideas and people featured on the show. You can listen to all episodes of Lichen Lab Podcast Season 1 through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts.